is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 143 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Sandra Gert all about how to write great beginnings. But first, to last week's question. And of course, there wasn't a question, but we do have some lovely comments, so I will read those uh, first. So the question of the day on Instagram was, do you struggle with creating active and deeper settings? LJ Granger author said, amazing episode. This really helped me because I struggle with describing my settings. So this has guided me to better understand how to mentally go about it. I've also purchased her book on the subject and it should arrive today. That is awesome. I have read the active settings one and loved it. Uh, Meg Jolly author said, this was incredible. Went straight onto my favorite podcast episodes lists. Uh, list. Such incredible insights and tips. Eliana West said, Mary is such an amazing teacher. And then author Sassy Cassie said, also great response to my question. Her books are golden references uh, that I look at all of the time. So this week's question is, it's mid-year. I literally can't believe it, but it is mid-year. We are now heading towards winter. No, (laughs) but we are. Um, So what's one thing that you will complete? What can you commit to completing by the end of this year? Let me know. I'm curious uh, if you have to focus on just getting one thing done, what's it going to be, guys? The book recommendation of the week this week is a patron's book. So uh, the book is called The The Fantastical Transmographer, a Camp Enigma novel. And this is middle grade and it's by Jennifer Roundell. So the uh, blurb says, it's hard to pass the camp's entrance exam when everyone's turning into a fantasy creature, including you. 12-year-old Grayson knows Camp Enigma's a little weird when he spots a real, live centaur in the forest. Then his little brother finds a glowing blue stone and sprouts horns. Grayson and the other three kids assigned to team number 93 want to pass their exam so they can stay at this strange but amazing new camp. The treasure hunt style test is hard enough, but then people start turning into fantasy creatures. The fairies aren't so bad, but the goblins steal puzzle pieces and the ogres try to eat everyone. Something has to be done. But the camp director and all the counsellors have all turned into fantasy creatures too. Try getting a finx to talk in anything but riddles and the yeti just wants to find somewhere to cool down. Grayson and his teammates are the only ones left who can turn everyone back to normal. They have to try and figure out a way to save everyone before they too turn into fantasy creatures or worse, get eaten by one. Enjoy book one of the Camp Enigma series, a light and playful story about kids having fun, saving the day and learning to be their best selves. And I had the opportunity to read this before it was published and it is so imaginative and like so visual. I loved it and I think this is such a good story for kids. Definitely middle grade, um, full of just, yeah, just fun and joy. And just if you have kids in your life, go get a copy of this book. So in personal update news, this week. I spent the majority of this week catching up from a holiday. I 
finished off proofing and tweaking the anatomy of a bestseller, that book is now done. Uh, however, <laughs> in typical me fashion, I have gone into a spiral of like paranoia and fear and anxiety about releasing it. So I have sent it to one more person to have a quick, a very fast uh, speed read of the book just to make sure that um, it, it just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't fucking know. I don't even know what I need to know. I think I just am feeling needy and need the reassurance that it's okay. Um, it is, I'm sure it is. Like everybody that's read it so far has said it's great. So, you know, but I'm just being a typical writer. <laughs> full of doubt. So yes, I have told the editor and um, they are on standby. So it will be going to them very, very soon. Um, so I'm excited. I do have a launch date in mind. Uh, however, I am not going to announce that this week. I don't think I think I will announce that next week because I think I will probably have put the pre-order up by then. Um, but I just want it... Yes, actually, I might put the pre-order up this weekend, so it will probably already be on pre-order by the time uh, uh, I get to next week's episode. But what that means is that finally, <laughs> finally, I get to work on the scent of death. So as of tomorrow, today is Thursday the 16th of June, and as, as of tomorrow morning, I will officially be in drafting mode again. I can't believe that. The breaks between books seem, feel like they're getting shorter and shorter. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It definitely means I'm doing less admin. Um, and makes me happier because that's the bit that I really enjoy doing is the drafting. I fucking hate editing, um, or at least my own work anyway. Uh, so yes, I definitely enjoy uh, spending a bit longer on the draft to make it cleaner so that the edits are easier for me. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, oh yes. <laughs> so I'm now in monthly strengths coaching and my coach has kind of set a, laid a gauntlet, shall we say, of a challenge over the next month uh, for how many words I can get. And I want to beat her, <laughs> beat beat the goal, beat the challenge, so to, so to speak, whatever we want to call it. And so... <laughs> I don't think she listens to this, but um, I am absolutely fucking determined to do it. And I think I will be posting my daily counts on Instagram just to kind of like really wind myself up uh, to give me the accountability and like the, the, com the competitive challenge. So um, uh, if everybody knows about it, <laughs> there's no fucking way I will let myself fail. So um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I feel a bit... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have confessed to this. But yeah, if you um, see me desperately trying to get words, please uh, encourage me, cheer, and uh, hopefully I can be victorious uh, at the end of the month. So essentially, I need to try and write as much as humanly possible before we go to South Africa uh, towards the end of July. So end of July really is my uh, deadline. I, I, I don't think I will get the book done. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but we shall we shall see how many. Well, I'm not going to admit the actual word counts I need to hit because that might be too much pressure. Uh, but yes. So I think that's probably it from my end. I am mostly... Oh, no, it's not. I also have... Okay, so... Most of the people listening listen for my nonfiction, but there are some people who also listen for my fiction. So if you are a fiction reader and you read young adult and you like Suffolk books, then I am going to be launching my list. So 
as you will know, I spent weeks and weeks and weeks curating a list of uh, sapphic books for young adults. And I now have a list of over 250. And I've had it designed into this gorgeous PDF that's all bright and colorful with all the blurbs and the covers. And it's like a really handy guide. And I'm going to be using that as a list builder. So if you would like to join my sapphic mailing list um, and you are curious and nosy and want to see what I'm up to, and you also would like a, a gigantic document with loads of recommendations and book covers and things in it, then I will drop a link to that in the show notes. Okay, I think, yeah, okay, that probably is it from me today. So the rebel of the week this week is Beth Cox. Beth says, for almost everyone, the disaster of, the, of 2020 was the pandemic and lockdown. For me, however, that was not the major disaster of my year. My soon-to-be ex-husband had stopped paying two loans, oh my god, in 2019 and didn't tell me. Oh, fuck. When the sheriff delivered foreclosure papers, I was shocked, but my husband replied he knew it was coming. Oh my god! Then things got worse. Our credit cards got cancelled for failure of payment. Our cell phones got cancelled for failure of payment. And our bank account got closed for the fraud he was committing. I moved out June 2020, moving myself and my son in with my parents. I recently got some information from the court system on steps I might have to take to save our house from foreclosure. I refuse to share this information with my husband. He can live with the consequences of his stupidity. Oh, that is a... Uh, wow, that really was a disaster. I'm so sorry that you experienced that and that your husband did that. I can't believe that, but good on you for getting out of there and for taking your son um, and for <laughs> holding on to the information as well. Like, too fucking right. Uh, he doesn't deserve it. So I hope that you managed to save the house and um, that, yeah, you uh, rebuild your life from here. And thank you so much for sharing such an honest rebellion. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. So I have now put on social media and in the Patreon Slack uh, because we are like scarily low on rebellions. If you haven't sent in a rebellion, please send one in. I really don't want to stop doing these Rebel of the Week stories. They are my favourite moment each week. And um, yeah, we are incredibly low. Uh, Even if you've sent in a rebellion before, feel free to send in another one. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. And that's Becca, that's who you're sending it to. Okay, a big welcome and thank you to Marion Sargent and Shannon Grogan. Uh, they, they are both new patrons, so thank you both so much for joining me. And of course, a huge thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, and guys, seriously, there is so much stuff that we do in Patreon. It's a massive community now. We have the Slack group. We um, sometimes do watch parties. So we did a First Kill uh, episode one watch party. We have Patreon's uh, Poison and Prose monthly session, which is a monthly writing sprint uh, that we do. And you can ask me questions each uh, each time we do it. And we write together and then we ask questions and then we write together again. Uh, what else do we do? Obviously, if you're at the higher tier, uh, the $15 tier, then every three months you get an, an extra class that's delivered live from me. Uh, we deconstruct a book and I show you all the tools 
tools, tricks, hints and tips that you can get from that class. Um, what else? You... Um, oh yes, and then every quarter we are doing a Rebel Challenge. So we're just coming towards the end of this quarter, uh, but going into next quarter, we have a challenge and a spreadsheet where everyone can put their goals and track their word counts together and we all cheer each other on. And each week somebody hosts um, and all of the patrons do different things. We've had meditations every day. We've had uh, Rebel stories from the past. We've had daily sprints. We've had all kinds of stuff. It is a huge fucking community and like seriously you should all come and join. Um, I don't even know, I just got very engrossed in talking about Patreon. If you would like to join, then you can do so from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, this episode is sponsored by the ever amazing Kobo Writing Life. So I'm just going to tell you a little word about Kobo. Kobo Writing Life is Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. And with that in mind, let's talk about how KWL authors can reach library readers. Right now, digital, digital books are reaching more people than ever and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. In 2021, 121 digital library systems powered by Overdrive surpassed 506 million checkouts. This means a lot of happy library readers and library readers are some of the most engaged and passionate book lovers out there. You can easily add your book to Overdrive's library system through Kobo Writing Life. All you need to do is go to the Rights and Distribution section of your book, click Yes to Overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will then be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option, and you'll earn 50% on every library sale. If you're not too sure what price you should set for your book, we recommend roughly the same price as a mass market paperback. Your book could be loaned out several times, which is why we encourage pricing higher than your normal ebook. And don't forget to tell your readers that they can now pick up your books in libraries. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email our team at writinglife at kobo.com and we'll add you to our mailing list. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, and you really should, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Okay, that's enough uh, from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sandra Gett. Sandra is a writer and editor who divides her time between writing her own books and helping other writers revise and polish theirs. She holds a degree in psychology, just like me, and worked as a psychologist for eight years before transitioning into a career as a full-time novelist, the best job in the world as far as she's concerned, and I totally agree. She earned a certificate in editing from the Academy of German Book Trade and is now the senior editor of Ilva Publishing, a small press that publishes LGBT plus fiction. Under her pen name, Jay, she has published 22 novels and about a dozen short stories. Her books have won numerous awards and have been number one bestsellers on Amazon's various, on various occasions. She is also the author of a series of books. 
books for writers, which is what we are here to talk about today. Hello and welcome. First of all, tell me about the psychology. What, what area did you specialize in? Oh, it's um, an area of psychology that I think exists just in Germany where I live. It was traffic psychology, um, which basically meant I worked with a lot of people who um, lost their driver's license, either because of um, drunk driving or driving under the influence of drugs or repeated traffic infractions. Um, so it was it had a lot to do with either addiction or alcohol abuse or just plain bad habits. Oh, wow. So did you treat people or were you in research? No, I, I was actually uh, counseling people. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I um, I did psychology at university and then um, did a master's in cognitive neuropsychology. Oh. And then I I got a scholarship to do a PhD because I came up with um, like some concepts around distributed cognition. Um, mm -hmm. And I was supposed to go to Macquarie, but in the end, I, I just, I'd been in education for so long and I just wanted to earn some money. Yeah. Um, so I quit and now I'm a writer, like... <laughs> It's just kind of ironic that I wanted to earn money. But anyway, um, amazing. I find I find it fascinating. I love when people have backgrounds in psychology. And weirdly, quite a lot of writers have a background mm -hmm. in psychology. I don't know what yeah. that's about. Um, okay, so would you like to tell everyone a bit about your journey? Like, how mm -hmm. did you go from sort of psychologist to author? Yeah, I have to say I was a writer before, long before I was a psychologist. I started writing when I was about 10 years old or so um so it was I, it feels like breathing at this point to me um I can't imagine not being a writer I never stopped um during all my teen years and my years of um, being a psychologist I've always written and published my first book uh 15 years ago um I have to say in the beginning years I was writing in my native language which is German um, but I was missing a community um, since I write um, lesbian and sapphic fiction. And back then, there wasn't much of a community for writers who were writing in German. And I wanted to grow as a writer. I wanted feedback from fellow authors, from beta readers, from editors. And there wasn't anything like that, no network in German. So um, 15 years ago, I switched to writing in English. And um, soon after, I... Um, published my first book and um, yeah that was the beginning of it. I am just in awe of anybody one who can speak a second language but two that can write a novel no less in in a language that isn't their own that is just so phenomenal so like I just I bow at your feet that is amazing how do you how did you how do you find the differences like do you translate your own books do you you translate your own books so you rewrite mm -hmm. them in German oh my god that's amazing I, wow I write them I write them in English because English is my creative language um, yeah. it, it would be at this point much harder for me um, to write them in German and then translate them into English um, which kind of makes sense because all the professional translators do it that way too they always translate into their native language and ah. so I, I I think in English all my research is in English my plotting is in English, my writing is in English, my revisions, everything, my notes, everything is in English. I don't oh. even think in German when I'm writing. Uh -huh. And then only when it comes time to translate, then I'm starting to think, oh my God, we don't <laughs> even have that word in German. And yeah. um, it, so, it's interesting. So out of curiosity, what language do you dream in? Um, it depends. I have aphantasia. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, which means that I 
I can't form mental images. Oh, yes. Actually, another guest uh, earlier on um, actually said the same thing. It was uh, the mm. first time I'd heard it then. Um, ah, so so when you dream, so what, <laughs> what, I, so what are your dreams like? Sometimes they have a visual element, but very rarely. I usually know what people are there and I don't hear them or see them, but I just know it's like, uh, it's it's weird to describe because I don't know how you are dreaming. I, I yeah. just I can't really imagine what yeah. that would be like. <laughs> I'm so fascinated. Um, fascinated. So so most of the time I wake up and I know what I've been dreaming about, like knowing a summary of a plot, kind yeah. of. But I can't even really tell you what language it was in. Was it even any language? Sometimes I know because I remember a line of dialogue that I that I had with someone. And sometimes it's in English, like if I'm dreaming about some of my friends who, who are Americans, for example, or who are British, then I will dream in English. And sometimes it's German, but and sometimes I, I'm not sure. So. Oh, my God, your brain is amazing. I, I, I this is so interesting to me. I find I, when somebody has a, a brain that works differently to me, I just find it so interesting. This is why I did psychology, clearly. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, well, I think I've picked your brains enough about that. Um, let's talk about beginnings. I am very interested to hear your takes on this because my beginnings always change. And I know that horrifies some people who have to write linearly in order, but I do not do that. Um, so I usually get about 70% of the way through a book and realize that there's something wrong with the beginning. Like literally every single book I've written, this has happened to me. So now I don't, I try, I write the beginning, but I try not to place too much importance on it until I mm -hmm. know the thing. Usually it's a location that changes, not always the scene. You, sometimes it's a location. Um, but um, how do you know when you've got the right beginning and what actually makes something the right beginning for your book? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it's perfectly fine um, to go back and to revise the beginning, um, especially if you are more of a pantser and not so much of a blotter. So you're not planning the entire book already then you won't know what is the right beginning for your book until you come to the end. Because then you're getting to know your characters, your themes, what the book is about during the first draft. And only once you've written that first draft, can you really know, is this the right beginning or do I have to either scrap it entirely or kind of just a little bit of an adjustment? Um, so I think that the most important part is to get it written and not very too much about getting it perfect during the first draft. Um, I, I've had a book where I ended up completely tossing away the first three, three chapters and, and um, writing something completely different because by the end of the book, it wasn't right anymore. Mm -hmm. And other books where I've changed very little and um, basically the first draft with a few adjustments um, were published. So it depends on the book. So what makes something a good beginning then? Like what for you as a writer or in your experience of editing, like what lands, what lands a beginning and how do you know when somebody has not got their beginning right? Mm -hmm. I think it's two criteria that any beginning in any genre, any kind of fiction or even nonfiction has to meet. Um, first of all, I always say that the beginning is a promise to the reader. It's like a contract. Um, so your opening scene in particular has to tell readers, look, this is what kind of book um, awaits you if you keep reading. Um, and it's not, not just 
okay, this is the genre, this is the subgenre, these are the themes, but also um, the mood, the tone, and what emotions readers will experience uh, when they are reading this book. Because especially fiction readers, they're not reading for the information, they're reading for the emotion. Um, so is this book going to be lighthearted and will I, will I laugh a lot or is this really serious and it will make me think? Is this more of a fast paced book or is it really slow? Um, all of this is something that needs to be revealed in the first scene and in the first chapter. And if the opening makes a promise that isn't kept by the end of the book and the, the entire rest of the book, and then it's clearly a beginning that no longer matches the book and it needs to be revised. Mm. And um, the second big thing I think is the be beginning is what sells the book. Um, if the beginning isn't interesting enough, it doesn't capture readers' interest, um, then it doesn't matter how brilliant your writing is, how clever your ending, what wonderful plot twist you have at the 50% mark, because the reader won't even get to that point. They will re stop reading after the first scene or maybe even on the first page um, because they are not buying the book. They won't read past the sample that they get. And so I think these two overarching things need to be met by any writer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into a little bit more of what you said around the promise. Like, what does a good promise or hook look like and how, like, what is it that you have to do to pay that off at the end? So what is that beginning and completion look like? Well, it depends on the book. Um, a hook can be pretty much anything, um, anything that captures the reader's attention um, and as fast as possible. Um, kind of the trick to creating a hook to me is to create a question, any question in the reader's mind um, that they really are curious to find out. And so to answer that question, to find the answer, they have to continue reading to find out. Mm. And it can be really any question, but it needs to be a question of curiosity, not, not like, huh, what? I'm confused. It needs to be something that, that they are like, oh my, that character is in trouble. How will they get out? Something like that. So a question with stakes buried in it. Yeah. Ah, okay, okay. Something like that, that causes, again, emotion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you mentioned emotion, I, of course, like we all do put emotion into our beginnings, but I don't think I've ever done it intentionally. I think I've never thought about the opening chapter as an emotional promise. I just thread it in, but now knowing that I can definitely do it like more intentionally. Um, I think, yeah, like I'm thinking about the book that I'm just about to, well, I'm kind of started. Um, and and it opens in a funeral and the book is called The Scent of Death. But like now I know that it's an emotional promise as well. I think I might have to tweak a couple of things because I can definitely set it up and like foreshadow some better emotions, I think. Um, mm -hmm. OK, so in your book, you talk about prologues and flashbacks and flash forwards and and so on and so forth. So I just wondered whether you could go over what each one is and why they either should or shouldn't be um, used early on in the story, because I know prologues are always a bit of a controversial uh, topic for writers. So, yeah, I just wanted to hear about that. Mm -hmm. So a prologue to start with that is a section of, of the book that is usually set apart from the rest of the book, from chapter one, by um, 
taking place in another time, usually before the first chapter. That's why it's called a prologue. Um, it can be months before or even years or in science fiction or fantasy, sometimes decades or centuries before it. And oftentimes it's also told from a point of view that is not the protagonist of the first chapter. Um, and that already tells you a little bit of what the problem is with prologues. Um, they are so completely different from the rest of the book that it's kind of hard to keep what kind of promise are you making in the prologue, prologue is so different from what the rest of the book is like. It's a different character. As soon as the characters bonded with the character from the prologue, they are jumping ahead in time to a different place, different time, different character. And especially in the beginning of the book, that can be very disorienting and kind of confusing to readers. Plus, a lot of the time, I have to say, prologues are often not very well written, and they are just an excuse to kind of dump all the information on the reader that we as authors think, okay, this is what a reader has to know to understand the story. Um, so it can be the backstory of the character or um, speculative fiction is especially guilty of that. All the history of the world and the species and the religion, the history, the technology, the magic, anything. And so basically you end up with a lot of telling um, which as an editor, I think a lot of editors are like, oh my God, I'm just gonna skip this. We were gonna take this out anyway. Um, and, and a lot of readers do it too. There are readers who love it, but in general, a prologue can be, if you have it, you need to have a really good reason and you need to be sure there's no better way to transport this information to readers. Yeah, I recently read um, a book, which will remain nameless, <laughs> but, um, it had a, the first chapter called chapter one, which was actually a prologue. And I was so whiplashed by the end of chapter one. When we moved into chapter two, it then returned to the protagonist, but it had labeled chapter one, chapter one. Mm -hmm. And we never again saw that character because that character was dead at the end of chapter one. Yeah. And I was literally like, wait, what? Like, I felt mm -hmm. so cheated because I was like, yeah. oh, this character's quite funny. You know, maybe this is going to be enjoyable. And then the character dies at the end of the chapter. And then that's it. We then go to, and it was, it really was a whiplash. So yeah, like if anyone listening is thinking of doing that, maybe don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And it, it makes you lose trust in the author. If they're killing off the one character, then you're like, oh, I'm not bonding with another one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so true. Literally by the end of page one, if the author has done their job and hooked, hooked you, given you some characterization on page one and a question that needs answering, you're already brought into that character. So to then remove that character completely, or, you know, uh, it moves centuries on or whatever, and it not be from that character's point of view is jarring. So yeah, I, I you know, I completely agree. I'm not a huge fan of prologues either, I have to say. Yeah. Um, also, because I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like chapter one tends to be almost copywritten. It's very short, sharp. It's very clear. There's mm -hmm. often like really quirky, like fun voice and the author always works really hard on it. Prologues are not like that. They are literally like, uh, 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 you know, I don't know, hyperbole and just like a dump of exaggerated, yeah. like whatever the author wants mm -hmm. to say. So yeah, yeah, completely agree. Yeah. 
Okay, you talk about the four most common mistakes uh, in your book that happen with beginnings. So I just wondered if you could go over those briefly with listeners and how they can like recognize the mistakes in their in their own work. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from not having prologues and a lot of flashbacks or flash forwards, which I just realized I didn't answer. Do you, did oh, you okay. Yes. Yeah, sorry. That? I forgot too. I got very excited about prologues. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's yeah. flashback to the flashbacks. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> so the other thing to avoid um, is similar to the, the problem of a prologue is to start in the opening chapter or the opening chapters with a flashback. So basically you are starting in the present, but then very soon after you are jumping back in time to present a scene from the from the character's past. And that like a prologue can be very jarring because especially in the beginning, readers aren't yet grounded and here and now of the story. And basically they don't care about the character that much yet. We haven't barely spent any time with them. So we are not that interested in their present yet. So why should we care about their past? It Mm. would be much better to weave the information about their past in bit by bit later on. Or if you have to have, absolutely have to have a flashback, then do it later when we are more grounded in the story and we won't be um, so confused about already in the first chapter jumping anywhere. Um, same with the with the third type of scene that I tell people to avoid in the openings is a flash forward, which is similar to the flashback, just that we are jumping forward in time. Um, so most often you get an opening um, that is a scene from later in the book, um, kind of like a teaser that shows you a really dramatic um, action scene or something like that from later in the book. And then we are jumping back and the rest of the book up to that point tells you how did the character get to that point. And oftentimes that's just a sign of the author is aware that their opening is really boring. And so they are kind of saying to readers, yes, look, I know the first 50 pages, they're kind of boring. But if you make it through this 50 pages, this is the action scene that that is awaiting you. Um, and wow, it's kind of. <laughs> It's cheating a little bit, like um, the better solution, of course, would be to work on the opening and to make it less boring (laughs) um, and not just take a a scene from the middle or the end of the book and already reveal what's what's coming um, and then go to the boring part. And yeah, it's not a good solution. Yeah, there's only like you can only kind of get away with that, I feel like in almost heisty or really action related type movies or, mm-hmm. or, or books or stories, I suppose. Like, you know, if it's uh, the last 48 hours, this is what happened kind of thing. Yeah. But even still, yeah, I do agree. I think you have to be really careful. Yeah. Um, and also sometimes I have to be in the mood for that kind of story because I don't always want, I don't really like, I don't reread because I don't like knowing what's coming. Mm-hmm. So to be told the ending, you know, that kind of thing, I I don't, I, I for me that only works when it's like 70, they give you a scene from 75% of the way through so that you mm-hmm. still have a twist coming afterwards. Yeah. That sometimes works for me, but yeah. not if they're showing you kind of the ending. I hate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so yes, four mistakes. You talk about mistakes Mm -hmm. in the book. So yeah, talk me through some common mistakes that you see in your sort of editor experience. Um, I'll just give a list and then I go into the details of what each of it means. Um, The four most common thing that I see in in manuscripts um, that come across my desk as an editor is 
either the opening is too slow or the opening is confusing, um, the opening is misleading, or the opening is a total cliche. Um, if I would have to say which one is the most common one, I would say by far that the opening is too slow. Oh, interesting. Um, I thought you were going to yeah. say cliche. No, no. Um, sometimes that's, that's easy to, to fix, but the slow opening is, um, I would say, like 70% of all the problems is the opening is too slow. And so, because there's a lot of different um, causes that can contribute it to making that opening slow. And authors usually don't recognize it or they don't know how to fix it. Um, so I would say um, either what we already touched on is that they have too much info dump in their opening chapter. They had a lot of things that they wanted to share with readers about the character and how they got into this situation and their whole family history or, or if it's, if it's um, speculative fiction, it's world building details and so basically the entire first chapter is very static and with lengthy descriptions and it's just tracks. Um, or um, what sometimes happens is that I, I call it the character is sitting and thinking problem. Um, so if you have one character alone in the scene, they're really not doing anything of importance, just washing the dishes or driving somewhere. Um, and they're thinking about their life. Um, reflecting on their situation. And it's basically just a lot of introspection, um, too much introspection. And that slows the pace to a crawl where nothing really is happening on the page. Um, sometimes it's also the fact that the, the author wasn't aware where to best start the story. They started the, the story at the point in the book where it was too soon. So they are going through the motions of showing the character waking up, getting ready to work, having breakfast, driving to work, arriving at work, we're meeting the co-workers and, and it's like, okay, now I get an idea of what everyday life looks, but it's all, I mean, come on, having muesli for breakfast is not that exciting. Um, nothing really happens. We have to read 10 pages until, oh, finally something exciting is happening. And nowadays readers don't have an attention span like that. That's that time is long past. Um, so all of that is is a big problem. So sometimes you can cut. I've had writers where I said, okay, we start with chapter five. Yeah. Oh my goodness me. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, how how can writers speed up their beginnings? Like. Uh, obviously you've mentioned like introspection and like the timings assuming that I just funny as you were talking about um you know get up get dressed tea blah 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 mm -hmm. I definitely think one of the very earliest stories that I wrote I was like almost thinking that I had to do full every day had to be 24 mm -hmm. hours and then of course you learn that actually you just transition them and you just skip time and you but it's funny because like <laughs> You don't know what you don't know if you don't know how, yeah. you know, when you yeah. come to it. Um, so, yeah, like what are, what's the opposite then? What are some of the best mm -hmm. beginnings? Like what, yeah, some of the best manuscripts that you've read, you've read and edited. What are some of the best beginnings and how do they make, how do they balance speed with character depth and hooking and emotion? Yeah. yeah. It's always a balancing act, you know, too much of one thing is a bad thing. Um, because the opposite problem um, which sometimes happens too, and I would say these are the two most common ones, is an ending that is an opening, sorry, that is too confusing. Um, um, and that often happens when the author goes too much in the opposite direction and they start the story too late. 
um, too much in the middle of things because that's what we get told if we if we read about writing or we have a writing mentor or editor we are told start in media's race in the middle of things so we jump right into the book um, and depending on the genre it might be an action scene um, where bombs are going off and people have a fight physical or verbal um, and sometimes if we overdo it it we, we are getting the reader lost because they are like what what's going on um, what are these, why are these characters fighting who are they why are they fighting who are the good guys who are the bad guys and there there are readers are asking questions but not the questions we want them to ask they are getting lost because they have no context and so i think it's it's a matter of not doing too much on the one side and also not doing too much on the other side um yes start as close to the change the inciting incidents as possible but also give us a little bit of context that we know who is who and we don't got to get overwhelmed in the action and getting completely lost yeah I think it's a common problem that one with fantasy because as well as trying to move their characters towards the inciting incident they're also trying to establish rules or magic laws or Mm -hmm. I don't know whatever and and so I have definitely read things where your language is just thrown at you without either with too much explanation or not Mm -hmm. enough explanation so yeah I think that is um yeah, a really, a really good uh, example. Um, okay, so what do you think are the most important things to establish in the opening chapter and how can writers do that effectively? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's a lot of things, um, but luckily it's not just the opening chapter, it's basically the entire opening act that some of it needs to happen in the opening scene, but with some you can take a little more time. Um, so. Let's start with the most important part. I think establishing the main character is is the most important thing. Um, You had this book that you read where the person you thought was the main character was killed off and then you felt cheated. Um, So I think the best way to open the book is the very first scene, basically maybe even the first line, needs to start with the main character, the protagonist of the book. Um, Because I always say that readers are a little bit like a freshly hatched um, bird, they will bond with whoever they come across first. And then they will assume this is the main character. Yeah, I have only seen one book that hasn't done that and pulled it off, which is The Book Thief, Mm -hmm. where death is the narrator, but not the protagonist. And that that book still blows my mind because I don't don't really know how how Marcus, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, did it. But yeah, that's the only book I've ever seen that has managed to pull that off. Yeah. And these are, I mean, with all rules of writing, they are guidelines. They are for a reason. And if you're breaking them, you have to do it. You have to make a conscious choice of breaking them and you have to know the effects and how to kind of um, achieve what you want and not just, oh, accidentally do it. Yeah, because then it look. yeah, unless it, you can tell, I think, as an editor, when somebody has done something intentionally mm-hmm. and then accidentally, like, broken a rule because it never, ever pays off no. <laughs> if you've done it accidentally. Yeah. Um, yes, sorry. Anyway, I interrupted you. <laughs> oh, no problem. Um, yeah, so the, the main character, the protagonist, has to be established as, as soon as you can. Um, and if you are opening your book with a character who turns out not to be the protagonist, um, 
think about it really hard. Uh, most of the time, it's not a good idea. Um, especially if we are only needing the protagonist later, you need to have a really, really good reason for that. Um, and then we need to learn a little bit about the main character, but not by telling us about them. Um, if you know the, the important rules, show, don't tell. We need to see them in action. We need to put the puzzle together about their personality ourselves. We don't want to be told they are shy. We need to see them act in a shy way and then we can conclude, aha, okay, this character obviously is shy. Um, then um, I already mentioned um, that the beginning is a promise to the reader about what kind of book it is. Um, so the genre and the tone, the atmosphere of the book has to be established. Um, to give you an example, I, I recently read a book that if you just if you hadn't seen the cover and you read the, let's say the first 30 pages you would have assumed okay it's clearly contemporary romance and then it turned out oh no it's actually a paranormal romance but um the fantastical elements only started showing up by page 30. um yeah so because it was urban fantasy it looked like our normal world there were no hints that something vampire shapeshifters magic would exist so if you're going to have these magical elements or otherworldly creatures, even if they don't show up in the first scene, there needs to be at least a little hint that tells us, okay, something about this world is not exactly like our world. So you can set your expectations um, in a realistic way and not expect it to be a completely different book than it turns out being. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Beginnings, they're dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> beginnings, be are, beginnings are really tough there. They have to do so much at the same time and all without readers hearing the clock behind it, you know, like um, it doesn't have to, it needs to flow and look effortless, even if it totally isn't. So yeah, they can be tricky. But the good thing is it's not brain surgery. You don't have to get it right on the first try. As we said, you can yeah. you can revise and polish until you feel like, okay, so I have established my main character. I think I got the tone correct for the rest of the book. And then you can go over the entire list. Like I would also say, the opening needs to establish the place and the time because if readers don't know is this like a little town is this a big town are we in the present are we in the past um, is it winter or summer is it daylight or not um it, it those of us who can create mental images they they need to have enough detail to form a mental image but not so much that they get lost in this five pages of descriptions of a garden. Um, so I, I would say pick a handful of details that are really important, that are vivid enough, and then try to see if you can have multiple senses and not just sight, but maybe also and the more intimate senses like touch or smell um, and, and pick vivid ones that have meaning to the point of view character, because not every character would notice the same things. And if they have, uh, if they enter a setting, um, and then try to also establish the point of view as early as you can. Um, and sometimes you read like half a page of neutral description of the weather or any description, and you have no idea whose point of view is this even. Um, so I think that maybe in the first line or at least the first paragraph to let us know whose head are we even in, um, who's tell telling us a story, whose eyes are we watching through, 
Um, and also keep in mind the bigger picture of point of view, like is this a single point of view, the entire book, or will we have point of view switches? Um, I've read books where like in chapter five, we had the first time that the point of view switched until I, and I had already settled into this one point of view and I wasn't expecting it and it totally threw me. Yeah. Um, and so if you are going to switch the point of view at some point, um, don't do it too late. But on the other hand, also don't do it too early um, before we've even settled into that one point of view. If you if you have a two-page scene and then already you're switching the point of, of view, uh, it could be a little bit too early because we haven't bonded with the character enough. So again, it's all a question of hitting the right balance and not doing too much of one thing or another. How do you feel about first lines? Because I always, like, I seriously, I, I write about 28 different first lines before I land on the one that I really like. Mm -hmm. um, and some of my favorite first lines I'm finding more and more are almost copy written. Um, they're like really powerful and punchy. So I just wondered, like, I don't know if you, and I'm testing you now because I haven't pre-prepared pre you for this question, but I don't know if you have any favorite first lines or if you have any tips or tricks for really cracking that first line. Um, if you can make the first line like really punchy, again, it depends on your audience um, and that depends on the genre a lot, but look at, Go look at some really, really popular books, um, award-winning books, best-selling books, books by authors who really know what they are doing and contemporary ones, like in the last two, three, four years, I would say. And then look what, what kind of openings um, they have and what speaks to you as a reader. Um, because as writers, we need to read in our genre. Um, if the first line can already be a hook, that's perfect but sometimes it's wrong for a book. And then if you're just fitting it in with a hammer just to have a flashy first line, um, then maybe have a flashy second line and the first line is more of a steady setting the, the context a little bit. It, it depends, but if it can be the, a good, really, really, really hooky first line, that's, that's perfect, of course. Um, I uh, have, two in my mind, but oh God, I don't know if I'm quoting it correctly. Um, um, I have in, in my book, uh, Right Great Beginnings, I'm quoting from The Martian by Andy Weir. Um, he has a first line from a first person point of view that basically just said, um, I'm pretty damn fucked. <laughs> and you think, oh my God, <laughs> who is this character? Yeah. Why is he fucked? What happened? And is he going to get out of that problem? Yeah, is he going to get unfucked, basically? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And if you know the book or the movie, um, yeah, you know that the entire movie is him getting out of being fucked, so to yeah. say. Um, so that's kind of a very good first line because immediately you start asking the right questions and reading the next line to find out. And by the time he, he solves the first problem, he runs into three others. And so you keep reading. So that's perfect. Yeah, um, I love that one. Yeah, so, but it depends on the book. I mean, if it's, not a, if it's not a flashy book and you don't have a strong opening scene where a lot of action happens, maybe it doesn't need to be like that, but any kind of question, any kind of hook you can raise. And of course you should, even if he said in the first 
draft, don't spend too much time on the first scene, but in the revisions, you need to spend a lot of time. Um, the, the opening scene is the most important um, and the opening line is really important and the opening paragraph. I always feel like the opening line is a competition. It's like, how can I, how can I, how can I make this line the juiciest, most mm -hmm. like, yeah, enticing line possible. And I don't always get it right, but like sometimes you land on a good one and mm -hmm. uh, it's just like, oh yeah, but I actually collect them. I have like a whole list mm -hmm. of people's first lines just because yeah. I'm a geek and I like to, <laughs> I like to yeah. have things like that. Um, Okay, so we've talked about like what to establish in the opening chapter, but in kind of the opening act, what are the other really important things and how can writers land those effectively? Mm -hmm. um, I think I already said that some of these things that you have to establish, and I skipped a lot of them because it's a lot. Yeah. Um, like the, the character's goal, the character arc that they have to go through. All of that is not just limited to, you have to establish it in the opening chapter. Um, the traditional story structure, um, to back up a little um, and to explain what is the first act is, um, everyone knows that any book, any story, any movie is, um, is three parts, um, the beginning, the middle and the end. And the first act is the beginning, all the setup basically, um, before the, the, the main action of the book can, can start. Um, and a lot of these things that you need to establish will be in the first chapter, but some of them can be a little later in the, in the opening act, like um, the big story goal that the, the character has, like uh, in crime fiction, it might be solving a case or um, getting a promotion or saving the family business. Sometimes you won't establish it in the first chapter, but then you do it a little later in the first act, all depending on the story. Um, but to help you structure the first act a little bit, um, there's a framework and it's really just a framework. It's not like um, ABC, but it's a framework that is supposed to help. Um, it's helpful to know that within the first act, there are common elements that you will find in pretty much any story that you can think of across all genres. And usually stories open up in the ordinary world um, which is basically the character's normal life, how it looks before that big event happens. Um, and in the past, authors had all the time for several chapters to tell you all the details of the family history. Um, and yeah, long gone. <laughs> long gone. The, yeah, that's the problem with the classics, you know. Um, if you try to copy them, they wouldn't sell nowadays because readers have different expectations um, regarding their entertainment. Um, so nowadays in most, most genre, it really makes sense to keep the ordinary world part relatively short, give us a little climbs. Okay, who is this character? How do they live? Um, what's their personality? Um, and then move on relatively quick to the next part of the first act, which is what we call the inciting incident. And if you follow the, the hero's journey, it's also called the call to adventure, um, which comes from fantasy and, and adventure stories. Um, this is basically an event that challenges the ordinary world. So something is happening that, that forces the, 
the main character out of their comfort zone. Um, usually it's a problem that they are faced with that they have to solve, um, a challenge they have to deal with, or sometimes it can also be something positive, more like an opportunity that presents themselves, that presents itself. Um, and what it is can be really anything and it very much is dependent on the genre. Um, in, a, in a romance, I write mostly romances, um, it's usually the meeting of the two main characters or an event that will lead to the meeting of them. Um, yeah. And usually then it's followed by an, an, an element that is called the refusal of the call. Um, because yeah, as psychologists, we know that people don't really like change. Um, we're very resistant to it. We have our comfort zones and we don't really want to leave them. Um, so what, what usually happens is that the main character kind of resists that call to action um, or that call to adventure and doesn't want to take on the problem. Um, in a romance, yeah, they, there's always reasons why they don't want anything to do with love or with that other character. Um, and in some books, that refusal of the call phase is very short, maybe just a line or two, just a stray thought, oh no, I really don't want to do this. And then they do it anyway. Um, or depending how big that problem is, it can be a few scenes or an entire chapter. Um, I would recommend not to make it too long because this is a more static phase where they are in their head a lot with a lot of introspection and readers know anyway, they will take on this problem. So if you make the character too whiny and too resistant, it can really get on people's nerves. So yeah, um, of these four elements, um, the ordinary world inside the incident, the refusal of the call and the next one, the point of no return. Um, the first one and the third one are the more static ones and they, I would keep them a little shorter and the ones where something is happening and something new is introduced, um, these should be really the, the focus of the, of the first act. Um, and in the point of no return, um, it's basically when the main character finally gives in and says, okay, okay, I will take on that challenge. I will, the private investigator will say, okay, I will take the case or in a romance, um, they agree, okay, I will enter this fake relationship with you or whatever it is. Um, and it's called the point of no return because once they make that decision, it's a commitment to their story goal and they can't easily go back. There's no more going back to the ordinary world. There's too much at stake. So they can only go forward. They can't just say, okay, we go our separate ways. And it has to be something that they really care about because if the characters don't care about the outcome, then readers won't either. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's basically the, the framework that gives you an, an entertaining um, um, first act if you don't bog it down with too much of the stuff that we already discussed, like too much info dump, too much introspection. I think I'm going to have to come back and listen to this episode again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of information. But the, the good thing is that at one point, once you've written like 20 novels, um, you don't have to think about it anymore. It's it's becoming background knowledge that that just informs your decisions automatically. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I would have to say, I think the most rebellious thing um, is actually the decision to give up my safe and steady um, day job to become a full-time writer. Um, Because in my family, I come from a family, interestingly, of non-readers. My parents, all of my grandparents, to my knowledge, as far as I know, they never read a novel. Never. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. That is... Yeah. I don't know why. I can't understand it. Um, I've always been a reader. um, But in my... Maybe because, uh, you know, like, there were no stories in my family. And maybe that... um, I, I needed those stories, and so I began to write my own. Um, and growing up, it was tolerated, but not really encouraged. And um, psychology oh was the safe thing me. to do. So um, <clears throat> that step to really say, okay, I'm going to quit my job and um, become a starving artist or not starving yes. artist. Is, <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like a bungee jumping from a really high cliff, and it, it did thankfully pay off so yeah I'm grateful it's so interesting because when I growing up my mum always used to read to me and she encouraged me to read but it's only in my adulthood that I realized she doesn't read she is not a reader Mm -hmm. but I never knew that because she spent so much time reading me stories and like taking me to the library and going to bookstores and whatever but yeah so she hit it really well but she's not a reader at all and then my dad is a reader but he only reads non-fiction and he only Mm. reads certain genre and he he only reads a select a few books a year because they're like beastly sized Mm -hmm. books um but yeah it's so interesting I do have other people in there are actually funnily enough other writers in the family um but my direct family like my siblings none of them are really readers either I find Mm -hmm. I'm like I don't get it I don't get it yeah (laughs) it just blows my mind my siblings are both readers like my twin sister is a reader and my older sister um also dabbled a little bit in writing my niece is a writer but the, the older generations is like no reading, no writing, nothing. And it came out of nowhere. And yeah, it's interesting. That's fascinating. Oh, I love it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your books and like anything else that you would like to add? Mm-hmm. The best place to find me is um, via my website, um, Sandra Gert. This is S-A-N-D-R-A-G-E-R-T-H dot com. And there you will find um, my five writer's guides. And one of them, Show Don't Tell, is free on Amazon and most retailers. Um, the website also has a blog with a lot of writing tips. Um, and it has a cheat sheet on how to write great beginnings with 20 do's and don'ts. And you also can download it for free. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. And of course, a giant thank you to all of the show's listeners and to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Sandra Gert, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast.
Next week, I'm joined by one of my in real life writing friends, Meg Cowley, and we are going to be talking about how she manages multiple successful genres, as well as being a mum and having a ton of responsibility. So yeah, that one's going to be a bit more of like a, a life one, like how do you do it, juggling and managing different marketing methods and different audiences and all of that good stuff. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.